The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 27th chapter. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. 
But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the Gospel of the Lord. There are remarkable things about Jesus of Nazareth that you see and hear all over the Gospels. Remarkable things which stand out to you. You see his generous compassion, compassion to those in need, small needs like food and drink, and big needs like injury and illness, healing them. It's also remarkable to see how this man, the son of Mary, fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies about who the Christ was, where he would come from, and what he would do. But I think one of the most remarkable things that you see in Jesus in the Gospels is his willing attitude, particularly his willingness to fulfill what we call the sign of Jonah. You see, the ministry of Jesus was always, from start to finish, moving forward toward Calvary, the hill outside of Jerusalem where he would be crucified. You see, Jesus dying to pay for the sins of the world wasn't some sort of plan B for God. He didn't do it because, well, the Jews rejected him and he had to do something, so he might as well turn this for good. No, we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ of God, would indeed be a suffering servant. By his stripes, many would be healed. It was necessary, he said of himself, the Son of Man, go into Jerusalem be crucified, and three days later, rise again. Jesus knew it was coming. He knew what would happen that day that he rode into town on Palm Sunday, and he still went. Not only did he still go, but he went gladly. He went cheerfully to that death that he foretold and the scriptures foretold. And here's the thing. 
The thing I want you to remember today, Jesus went to his death cheerfully so that you and I, each one of us in this room, when the time comes, could go to our own deaths cheerfully. There's a mistake that I do encounter, and it's not just I encounter it for the sake of making a point in a sermon, but I have seen this, plenty of it, that people make. It's a remarkable mistake, and it's this. They insist that God owes them things, that they've got good things coming from God that he has to pay them. Usually you find this with nominal Christians, people that are kind of half in, half out of the church, or Maybe sometimes you find it with people that don't identify as Christians, but they say that they believe just in a God of some sort. But the attitude is generally the same when I encounter it. It's that I have this good thing that ought to come to me. These good things I have done, and the Lord should give me back good things for them. A lot of times that attitude is just one that mirrors the attitude that they have with other people. Okay? I've done good for you, so you ought to do good for me in return. And they just take that attitude and they apply it to their relationship with God. But other times, these people don't interact that way with other people. They don't have that quid pro quo attitude with other human beings, but they do have it with God. Maybe it's because they think that they've earned things. Earned things by their good works. Earned things just by the suffering that they have had to endure that maybe other people haven't had to. But whatever the case... This attitude is out there. I've seen it. You've probably seen it before yourself. When people stand before God and demand payment, payment for services rendered, things suffered. But anybody that knows the Bible well, who's read it at least once, anybody who remembers the catechism and what it teaches us about our relationship to God knows that there is a very grave problem with thinking in these terms. Demanding from God, things that we think that we are owed, is really one of the biggest cosmic foolish things that a person can do. Well, the answer is an easy one for why. Because at best, we're owed nothing from God. That's the best case scenario. And at worst, we are owed eternal punishment from God for really asking for what we have merited. No one is righteous. No, not one. And anyone, as James tells us, who has broken the law in part is guilty of it all. And as such, we are not only not owed good things, but we are owed wrath by the Creator who made us. Any thoughts or talks of rights or dues from God is a folly that each one of us in our own hearts ought to avoid, like the plague. No, what we are owed from God is not good at all. In fact, it's the opposite of good, and it's terrifying what we are owed from God if you give it more than a moment's honest thought. We are owed it individually, as just individual sinners, which we are, and certainly as humanity, we are owed it collectively. Think about it. In Eden, God's creation, and the prize of his creation, mankind turned away from him, having full fellowship and every need met, and went its own way. By right, by rights, eternal destruction and sorrow are what we have merited from our first parents. God not only could have, but indeed, according to his justice, he should have, should have wiped us out then and there. There is, of course, we know, a but. 
And that is a really important one, and it lies in this. God is just, but he's also merciful. He is also gracious. And in that mercy, we find the stay that kept him from doling out the punishment that we then and still now so richly deserve. He promised in the garden a fix through the woman's seed. And when he came, Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise. He did what the Father said he would do, undoing the curse of Eden. The seed born of the woman came into this world not to give us what we deserve, but to give us what he alone himself deserved. Where we were not and where we could not be sinless, this seed of the woman, Jesus, was sinless. Where we deserved the wrath of Almighty God the Father, his absence, the lack of his gracious presence, this seed, Jesus Christ, took it in our place. By his wounds, by his stripes, to use the words of Isaiah, we have been healed. By his death, we've been pardoned and forgiven. By his own suffering, we have been made alive. And all this, what did he do? Begrudging, angrily, the frustrated harump and his arms crossed? No. He did it willingly and even joyfully without complaint. Though it was not his debt to pay, not his cross to bear, he did it all the same and willingly. For an unworthy people, the Lamb of God suffered and died. For a disobedient humanity, God himself bled out on the cross. This he did for us because of his great love. He did it, and he did it gladly. And I think we do well to take this fact to heart his glad heart in saving us. Not just so that we stop ourselves from having the foolish ideas of demanding things from God that really we finally don't deserve and haven't earned. And not just that we learn to be more grateful, but both of those things are good and true. But I think we do well to remember all this so that we can go to our own deaths cheerfully. Think about it. Someday in the future, if Jesus does not come back first, like he promised, each one of us in this room will leave our body. We will leave this life. We will die. And because of Jesus' own death and our faith in the same, when that day comes for each of us individually, we don't have anything truly to worry about. We have nothing on that day to be dreadful of, apprehensive about, Scared about? No. And if you are, come talk to me. You really, truly, as Christians, have nothing to be bothered about by that day when it comes. Because you have trusted in him and his cross for your redemption, the death that awaits you is going to be a sleep that you will be awakened from at the last trumpet when he comes again in glory. No judgment awaits you, Christian, but only the loving arms of a father who is glad that you are home with him forever. So as Jesus rode cheerfully to his own death in Jerusalem, however many days God gives you, look forward cheerfully and gladly to that day when you will leave this veil of tears and be united with your God in heaven forever.
Amen.